0: Hello, and welcome to The Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast in partnership with the Grierson Trust. This is a brand new podcast that asks nonfiction filmmakers about the documentaries that have had a lasting impact on their lives and careers. I'm your host, June Jennings. I'm a writer and journalist based in New York and currently serve as the engagement and partnerships manager for Field of Vision, an award-winning filmmaker driven documentary unit. Every week, I'll ask a new filmmaker or filmmaking team about three documentaries connected by a single theme that have made a meaningful impression on their work and life. This is the final episode of season one of The Doc Exchange, and this week we're going to do something a little different. I've had the pleasure of interviewing 12 nonfiction filmmakers across nine episodes, and so we want to take a moment to reflect on some of the most insightful and interesting parts of those conversations. Specifically, some recurring themes that go to the very heart of what documentary filmmaking is and the different approaches that can be taken to make captivating and challenging nonfiction cinema. First up, access, which might be the most overused word in documentary filmmaking. How do you get it? Who are you trying to access? And who are you not? And how do you turn that access once you've gotten it into a great story? Whether it's making documentaries about icons that are still alive or who are no longer with us, Asif Kapadia has proven himself a master at teasing out details and stories from people who were in the room at the time. In episode one of the podcast, Asif revealed what it takes to foster those relationships.
1: With Amy, there was never a script, never an outline. It was purely, we had her songs. The spine of the film was going to be the songs. And then it was a question of finding out who are the people who were there. Who's in the footage? Who's there next to her? Let's go and talk to them. So Amy came out of audio interviews, only audio interviews. And then once people trusted me and knew that I was coming from the right place and the idea was not to exploit her again, but to actually show the real Amy, then people trusted me enough to say, oh, I've got some footage. Because initially everyone said, no, i got nothing. And we had no idea if we'd ever have a film. But once they trusted me, they said, actually, I've got a bit of video. Oh, I've got these photographs. Oh, I've got this message. And the film was then constructed out of trust. The first thing you're going to have is they've got to trust you to open up to you and speak to you. And I made a point of not putting a camera on anyone because they did not trust the media. They did not trust journalists. They did not trust people because those were the people who made fun of her when she was alive. And so that was the worst thing was for me to come along saying I'm making a film. They're like, you're just going to be another person that's going to humiliate her. And I was like, no, that's not what I want to do. I'm going to try and show the real person, but I can't do it because I wasn't there. I never met her. You're going to have to tell me and you're going to have to trust me And that trust sometimes took years to build up. But out of that came the material. And all of the early Amy stuff, which no one had ever seen before, it came out of building up friendships with the people who were friends with her. And I think that's the thing that I'm interested in is I'm not interested when I'm making films with just having lots of famous people turning up in talking heads or just giving an opinion. And like if you weren't there, you don't know. You've got to be in the room with him. You've got to be the person that was standing next to Diego Maradona. And that's where someone like Fernando Signorini, his trainer, came along. We had to find him and he was working in Mexico at the time. Maradona and his ex-wife really don't get along. They're suing each other at court right now. But I still said, there's no way we can make this film without you because you were there. You knew everything. So you're going to have to be in this film. I can't do a film about him without you. And I think that process of getting people to be on board, to go and fly to Argentina and Buenos Aires, to meet with them in person, just so that they can understand where you're coming from, so they can then trust you and open up and speak to you. And generally, once people speak to you, they will have some archive. So the archive then comes in and we then play around with it and they have to trust us that we're not gonna put this on the internet, we're not gonna give it away, we're not gonna tell this person what you've said and that person will never know. know, You've got to be really good at protecting your sources and all of that kind of adds up to people then being willing to share very, very personal footage. Family members or loved ones have died, they really don't want that material being given away to someone they don't trust. But
0: with great access comes great responsibility, something addressed by Oscar winning producer Simon Chen as he spoke about making Whitney in episode six.
3: You are kind of conscious in the process of making a film about someone so beloved, if not actually sacred, that you are having to sort of balance. Interests between, I guess, the fan base and I guess who will be the film's sort of built in audience, but also those that you hope to come to the film just because it's a great film and a great story and because the artist is culturally significant. So we were dealing with a lot of those sensitivities around her legacy and sensitivities within her family. I mean, we actually had our sort of way into that project was through. Whitney's family and the estate. And the very first conversation we had with them was about whether they would allow us to make a film that was honest, that went to places that they may not find comfortable, and whether they were willing to cede editorial control to us, all of which we would have said we would need to proceed. And they said that kind of unhesitatingly, in that case, Pat Houston, Whitney's sister-in-law, who kind of oversees the estate on behalf of the family, was completely up for a really honest portrayal of Whitney, notwithstanding the fact that she felt it was important, as did we, that ultimately it would be a compassionate portrait. We had no interest in doing something that wasn't compassionate, but it went to some very, very difficult places, and certainly there are members of her family who did not like that film. But, yeah, I suppose... With a subject like you know Whitney Houston or Tina Turner, there is this definitely this feeling while you're making it that this is unique, that somehow or other this access isn't gonna happen again. It hasn't happened before and it's not gonna happen again. With those two films, certainly I don't think anyone will get the kind of access to the family that we got ever again. I don't think they'll do that again. And for a fact with Tina that this is the first and I know it's the last project that she will fully participate in in this way so yeah there's more a sort of responsibility that comes with that because you know that you are I guess part of the reason for them wanting to do it is legacy but then again you don't want to be crushed by that idea because that responsibility can sometimes feel a bit crushing and actually in the end it isn't necessarily always about satisfying your subjects I mean obviously you want to tell a story that they will be happy with ultimately but that can't be your driving consideration there will have to be things inevitably in, in a film about anyone that they're not comfortable with and I would say that's the case with all these films but I think you have to you have to pursue those truths vigorously otherwise what are you what are you doing you're kind of doing doing something other than documentary, I think.
0: I also really appreciate the moment where Kate Blewett, who co-directed the Channel 4 documentary, The Dying Rooms, acknowledged that Nan Fu Wang and ling Zong were able to deepen the conversation around China's one-child policy because of the access they were able to obtain and the fact that they were telling a story that it directly affected them.
4: But what I think made it one step greater in many ways, was that it was coming from a lady who, the director, Nan Fu Wang, she was from within the system. You know, I think that's the big, big difference between the Dying Rooms, Return to the Dying Rooms, and One Child Nation, is for everything that Brian and I could work to achieve with our film, we weren't from within. And I think her, you know, she'd been pregnant, had her own child, she returned, having been born into the one child policy, and she went back to see the auntie, the midwife, she went back to her own village, she got her uncle, auntie, she was, had her whole family. And what was very apparent was that they were all involved and complicit. And that's deeply shocking because you're seeing it now from the inside out where everyone's saying they had to be part of it, they had to carry out the enforced sterilizations, the enforced abortions, they had to put the girls away, they had to lose the girls because that was necessary, because that was required of them. That I found deeply, deeply moving, that from within you could see all these people who were part of the enforcing of the one-child policy.
0: For almost as long as documentary has existed as a medium, there's been a debate around ethics and power dynamics. How can filmmakers ensure they're not misrepresenting or manipulating the communities they seek to portray? And how can they collaborate with their subjects and avoid imposing a narrative structure on real lives? Tamara Kotewska, who co-directed the critically acclaimed documentary, Honeyland, made some salient points around her responsibility as a filmmaker.
5: We had also a lot of moral questions in Honeyland how far we went. We have a scenes with drowning of the girl and the death of the mother of Atija and the cutting of the tree and just uh, witnessing all these horrible things in front of the camera that we were also judged, especially here in our country, how we didn't do anything about it and how we just present it, like h- how we managed to shoot it and you know not react. This is the moral dilemma that every author must answer to themselves. How far they are ready to show their protagonist. In what light they are ready to show them. And in this case, I would say the author can show as much as the protagonist wants to be shown. If I'm pushing my protagonist to do more than they want, then it's not okay. It's not a documentary. But if I'm only the observer and giving all the space and everything that a protagonist would usually do, then I'm just the storyteller. And it's important to tell this story through his eyes. So, for example, when the Sam family, together with the buyer, was cutting the tree, and people said, how can you not stop this? I mean, they're destroying her bees. But this is what they would anyways do, if we are there or we are not there. So it's better to show it to the world than not show it to the world. And also, they are proud of what they're doing. They were calling us, they were saying, look, we can do this. Just as an act of killing, the protagonist is proud. He's like, I will show you how I did it. Sometimes, even though it's scary to look at this as a documentarist, it's your duty to stay with your eyes open at the biggest crimes because you are the messenger.
0: I think Poppy Dixon, who is a documentary producer and director of documentaries at Sky UK, also made an interesting comment about not wanting to impose your own sense of right and wrong on the events being filmed and trying to keep an open mind throughout the process.
8: I think you always start with an idea, you always got a a, a sort of sense of what you think the truth might be, but you have to put that to one side really. I mean you'll debate it, you know, you debate it the whole way through with the director, with the editor, with the rest of the team. But ideally certainly in the sort of films that I make and enjoy, you want the viewer to be debating it afterwards, you know, unless you're making a, a sort of a film with a very, you know, polemic or a film where you have a very sort of naked point of view. I think you have to keep an open mind all the way through. You have to gain the trust of the Contributors, and you have to give them the respect of coming at it with a completely open mind. So, yeah, you, you want to ask all the questions and carry out the research in a way that's sort of like a, an investigation or an excavation process. Yeah, so I think that you owe the film and you owe the people in it the opportunity for things to go in many directions.
0: One major component of documentary filmmaking that came up numerous times was the idea of truth whose truth are you telling, and how are you telling it? One of my favorite conversations was with filmmaking and life partners, Bonnie Cohen and John Shank, whose most recent film is Athlete A. We've dug into a lot of big topics, including trauma, justice, and how storytelling can be a means of healing for those whose truths have yet to be believed.
6: We did know that we wanted the story to be in the voice of the survivors. That was incredibly important to us. We didn't really have any agenda around that. Obviously, you can't with survivors. There's a very... Particular way in which it is not only the right thing to do, but the respectful thing to try and, you know, have them feel their way through what they want to tell of their story. And we feel like we really got there by the end. And that's a guiding principle that we don't have that much control over. That's sort of an interesting place to be as a filmmaker where. You're in the hands of these stories that need to play out the way they need to play out. And you just have to rely on what you're going to do with them afterwards and do justice to them. But that was an incredibly important way of working for us as we made the film.
7: One of the epiphanies we had with Audrey and Daisy, which is a film we made prior to Athlete A about high school girls who had been assaulted by boys in their high school was that you have to be really careful when you're talking to survivors about kind of re-traumatization and triggering. And the last thing you want to do is hurt people again who've been through a trauma. We kind of realized that there was another side of that coin, which is that people do want to tell their story when they're believed. And And there is healing in that. And I think that that's certainly going on in long... Uh, night's journey that in a way, these stories are answers to the question, like, what can you do to find justice in a situation where the courts don't really provide justice or the police can't really provide justice? You know, it, it where there's some kind of deeper need to get to a place of understanding, either with a perpetrator or just kind of with the systemic problem that exists. And Obviously, we're seeing that now in spades on the streets of our country. There's just this sublimely amazing thing going on where people are coming out and speaking their truth and often they're being believed and there's power in that. And in both these films, we're proud that Athlete A does this, but we are certainly kind of just fans of the way it's done in Long Night's Journey that, you know, hear examples of people just kind of speaking their truth to others who are just there to listen and, and believe them. And there's power in that. And I think that was an epiphany for Bonnie and me, that just by kind of bearing witness, going to Rachel Hollander or Jessica Howard or Maggie Nichols, Jamie Dancher, and saying, look, we're here at some basic level, just to listen to your story and try to understand what you've been through.
0: These ideas of power, truth, and storytelling were all discussed at length with several of our interviewees. And one of the things that came up repeatedly was perspective and what can be gained from writing or filming what you know. Catherine Bray, a writer, director and producer and commissioner who joined us for episode eight, made a very good point about knowing when to tell a story and knowing when to step back and facilitate it.
9: Fish story that I mentioned earlier, that is Casper's story. You wouldn't make that story without kind of having access to the person whose anecdote it was, because it's not just about what you are saying. It's about how you're saying it. And in the case of that, you need it to be said by Casper. It's integral to the way that he tells it, I think. I think you have to be careful where you're analysing a scene or a demographic or a cultural phenomenon that does not have cultural dominance and just think about whether it's really your story to tell or not. I mean, it was something that we thought about, but then felt was okay in the case of Lasting Marks, which is a doc we did about a very obscure piece of UK legislation whereby a court decided that you could be tried and convicted of having committed an assault on somebody even if they had consented. So it was uh, basically a homophobic judgment against a gay group of s&m enthusiasts in the 80s in england and you know men were sent to prison even though everything that they were doing was with their own consent and they were into it those men are sort of older now it wasn't really likely that they any of them were going to sort of make a documentary about that themselves. So it felt like actually our role there was to facilitate the telling of their story. But there are absolutely, you see all the time, I think, in documentary, that sort of idea of people feeling like they're the saviour going in and telling somebody else's story. And actually, maybe they should consider being a facilitator, or maybe they should consider backing off altogether. I think it's something that we're all still figuring out as a community, documentary makers, like when it is somebody's turn to speak, and when it is somebody else's Turn to take center stage. I think it's something that you, it's difficult to have hard and fast rules about. You sort of, I think you sort of know whether you're doing that thing of going in and taking over or whether you're doing it in a legitimate way. But it's as long as you're having the conversation, thinking about it, that's a good place to start.
0: One of my other favorite moments, and there were so many, was when Nicole Newnham, who co directed the Netflix documentary Crip Camp with Jim LeBret. Illuminated how his perspective as a wheelchair user brought a totally different soundscape to the film.
2: One thing that Jim kind of was working on on his own, really, because I wouldn't have been able to even come to the table with this knowledge, is we would be cutting a scene and Jim would be like, okay, well, I've got this like used wheelchair that just came in and the guys and I are going to do some recording of the sounds of this vintage hand pushed chair and I'll, I'll be right back. And I was sort of like, okay, you know, <laughs> like, so he's." Was- pretty much for years, collecting sound effects to create a soundscape of chairs in different environments that match Jim's memory of the way they sounded at the time. And I thought that was neat, but I was very floored by the difference it made in the film. In fact, at one point, it kind of almost brought me close to tears when we were in the mixing theater. And this moment happens where the Center for Independent Living in Berkeley has been created. And through all of the painstaking work that Jim and his team did, we've actually heard the manual chairs going up the ramps and on the sidewalks and getting loaded out of cars and all of those different sounds. But all of a sudden, we're in Berkeley, you know, six years later, and the Center for Independent Living had its own wheelchair repair shop, and they helped people get power chairs. And so when, you know, footage goes into the Center for Independent Living, it's like this whole world of people in power chairs, and they're like zooming around. And Jim created that, you feel this intimacy of being in a world that's full of manual chairs, and then you feel the shift in kind of history and time when everybody's zooming around, and you're finding out that your character, you know, that you love Denise, gets a power chair and gets this independence. So that was just like really kind of magical and almost kind of felt like this meant to be kind of thing that could only have happened in, in this film with this filmmaker with these memories and this devotion to sound.
0: And finally, to see us out, I have to mention this beautiful moment in last week's episode with Kirsten Johnson, who was just a joy to interview. In her closing remarks, she spoke about her ethos of making films about what you know deeply. And I think that's a part of what made camera person. And now Dick Johnson is dead. So successful. And also so profound. Kirsten is the only person who had told those particular stories.
10: And I would say That is why it's so important, June, that we get to see films made by people who know the place, because you see a place differently if you know it. That doesn't mean that we can't have films of people searching and discovering. But as you know, we have a history of cinema where certain people have discovered and seen and searched in other people's worlds and projected onto those worlds things they believe to be there. And we know the damage this has done about how people are seen. So I am certainly an advocate for all kinds of filmmaking, but I really think we have to support people making films about things that they know deeply. So that's part of my choice in making this film, was to do something about a person I know deeply and a place I know deeply.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Doc Exchange, a Real Stories podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production in partnership with the Grierson Trust. I'm your host, June Jennings. The Doc Exchange is produced by Nicole Davis and Annie Hughes. Our executive producer is Paul Wolfe. Our music is by Dusty Dex and sourced Through Epidemic Sound edited by content is queen and our artwork is by nash Cassick. if you enjoyed the show you can subscribe on apple podcasts Acast, spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts if you want to watch even more great documentaries join us at real stories on youtube amazon facebook and other platforms thank you for listening we'll be back next week